All right, so you've got some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, it's going to have most of the passages of Scripture we're going to look at on there. Uh, And there's some blanks on there for you to take notes. The first blank on your notes is the first secret to being used by God, and it's this. If I really want to be used by God, I must, number one, rely on God's mercy as my motivation. I must rely on God's mercy as my motivation. Do we have a mic? All right, 2 Corinthians 4.1, go ahead. God in his mercy has given us this ministry and work to do. That's why we do not become discouraged and never give up. All right, so he says right here, God has given us this ministry. God has given us this work to do. And remember the definition of mercy. The definition of mercy on your notes is undeserved forgiveness and unearned kindness undeserved forgiveness and unearned kindness. That's an important definition because the reason we don't believe God loves us is often because we think we have to earn it. The reason we don't think God can forgive us is often because we think we haven't done enough to be forgiven. Let me tell you, you have not done any enough to lo- earn God's love. You have not done enough to earn God's forgiveness. That's why we need mercy. You will never do enough to earn God's love. You will never do enough to earn God's forgiveness. That's why we need mercy. That's why we need grace. That's what the definition is. I talk with people all the time who struggle with believing that God could love them. Now, often they believe God could love everybody else, but God couldn't love them, right? It's just kind of how we think sometimes. That's what mercy is for. It's undeserved. It's unearned. You can't earn it. You can never do anything to make God love you more than he loves you right now. Now, that's hard to believe, but that's what mercy is. And God is a God of mercy. Everything that God does for us is an act of mercy. When we receive forgiveness from him, we don't deserve it. When we receive grace from him, we don't deserve it. When we receive kindness or favor from him, we don't deserve it. That's because he's a merciful God. In 2 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says that God in his mercy has given us ministry work to do. Now, don't let that word ministry freak you out, okay? It just means service. Here's a summary of what this teaches. Your life is meant to be a contribution. That's what your life is meant to be. You want to know the purpose of your life? The purpose of your life is to give a contribution to God and the world around you. You say, how do I do that? Well, through ministry. Ministry just means service to God. It's not just something that church staff does. Anybody that's a Christian is called to be a minister. Every single one of us are called to make a contribution. Now, when you understand the mercy of God and are are motivated by the mercy of God, you want to know what that relieves? It relieves insecurity because When you understand the mercy of God and that you can't earn God's favor, that you can't earn God's love, you can't. Instead of working for those things, you work from those things. Does that make sense? You don't work for God's love. When you understand God's mercy, you work from God's love. And that relieves insecurity because you're not trying to prove your worth to anybody. That's all insecurity is is you're trying to prove your worth. Any in here struggle with insecurity? I do, right? I just want people to like me. I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to think I can do a good job. Well, who am I thinking about? Me. When I realize God does love me, though, it relieves all that pressure. Like nothing I can do in life can make God love me any more than he does right now. 
Okay, I don't feel pressured to go after his love because I already have it. Does that make sense? And that's a different way to live. Look, insecurity leads to workaholism. It, this, is, this is where you feel like you have to do at least perfectionism. Like, I, I could never do enough. I could never do enough right, right? So workaholism, perfectionism, that's when you're working for love. You don't work for love. You need to work from love. And when you embrace his mercy, and if you just believe what God says about you in the Bible, if you will just believe what he says about loving you, it takes all of the pressure away. It relieves all of that, and you don't have to chase after it. It's not like a carrot and stick where I'm, I'm chasing after it, right? It's, it's, no, God has given this to me. He's given this grace to me. He's given this love to me. I'm going to be okay. And you want to know what else it does? It gives you room to blow it. Isn't that good? Any of you in here ever blow it? Have you ever, with all sincerity, tried to help somebody and just screwed it up? I mean, I have. You ever tried to say something nice to your spouse and it comes out wrong? And they get mad instead of glad? That's never happened to me. It may have happened to you. Just kidding. Happens to me a lot, right? Right? But if I'm working from God's love... I, I can blow it sometimes and be okay. And you want to know what? When you accept God's mercy, you want to know what else it allows you to do? Be merciful to others when they blow it because you know you need it to. There's all kinds of benefits to this, guys. All kinds of benefits, and they're all good. And guys, if you have blown it, you are in good company. When you start reading through the Bible and you start looking at all of the different kinds of people that were in the Bible who struggled with this, who blew it from time to time. Man, you, you just, you're, you're, it takes the pressure off. Abraham, for instance, some of you guys are like, I'm too old. I'm in this church with all these young people. I'm like going to be dead soon. Like, seriously, how, how am I supposed to be used by God? I don't mean to be offensive, but look, it's life, right? Uh, Abraham, you go, you'll start reading the book of Genesis. Abraham, he didn't even get mentioned until he was 90. And then his ministry didn't really start till he was 100. Can you say, I'm too old? You're not even 100 yet. <laughs> Abraham was 100, and he started being used by God. Jacob, whose name would later be changed to Israel, was a chronic liar and scoundrel. He was used powerfully by God. Joseph, some of you are like, I'm too messed up. I was abused. Joseph was abused as a kid. Bad. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? He, he was used powerfully by God. Leah. Okay, you go read about Leah in Genesis. She was ugly. You say, I'm not, I'm not pretty enough to be used by God. You don't have to be pretty. She was ugly. She was used powerfully by God. Moses was a murderer, right? Gideon was a poor coward. Samson was a reckless codependent. Jonah was full of hatred and contempt. Elijah was suicidal. Naomi was an elderly widow. Jeremiah had chronic depression. David had an affair and had his spouse murdered, or had her spouse murdered to cover it up. Martha was a warrior. John the Baptist was a weirdo and doubted God's plan. Peter was impulsive and struggled with anger issues. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was a scoundrel and betrayed his own people. Thomas was a doubter. Timothy was timid. Paul was guilty of murder, and he destroyed the church. Guys, God used all of those people powerfully despite how jacked up and messed up their lives were. Do you guys see that? 
And that's just a few examples. I could add to the list. That's just a few. All of these people were unqualified. All of these people had done stuff that would make them disqualified. God, in his mercy, pours it out, gives them forgiveness, and uses them powerfully. The apostle Paul was painfully aware of how messed up he'd been before he met Jesus. Go ahead and read Galatians 1, 13 and 15. You know what I was like, how I violently persecuted Christians. I did my best to get rid of them, but then something happened. For it pleased God in his kindness to choose me and call me, even before I was born. What undeserved mercy. All right. Man, he's saying, man, God poured out his mercy on me. Despite all the bad stuff that I did, he poured out his mercy on me. God's mercy changed me. And he's saying here, God's mercy can change you too. That is Paul's word to you. His mercy changed me, it can change you too. And if God's mercy, this is the next blank on your notes, if God's mercy is my motivation, I will experience transformation. If God's mercy is my motivation, I will experience transformation. Paul, in speaking about his past, reflects on the transformative experience of connecting with the mercy of God. That is what changed him. When he came to understand God's love, that is what changed him. And if you're struggling with truly being transformed today, it could be that you haven't really embraced God's love for you today. You may think there's too much in your past, or there's hidden sin, or there may be whatever. There's things you're ashamed of, guys. Or there, there's just there's something there. There's some lie that you're believing. When you can get past that lie and embrace God really does love me, God really does want a relationship with me, God's mercy really is for me, God really is for me, man, it changes the ballgame. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Whatever I am now it is all because God poured out such kindness and grace upon me, and not without results. For I worked harder than all other apostles, yet actually I wasn't doing it, but God working in me. So what he says right here is that, you know, he's whatever I am now, which at this point now he had been, a, he had been an apostle, he had been building the kingdom for a while. So whatever I am now, which is now a kingdom builder, an evangelist, I'm a guy who's a spiritual mentor, whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his kindness on me. Guys, he gives God all the credit right here. He gives him all the credit. We need to never fall out of that habit of giving God credit. Sometimes, guys, if you're not careful, you can give people too much credit. Like sometimes the church, I think, we can give too much credit to the exclusion of God. We must never forget that God is the source of all things good. We better keep our eye on the ball. And make sure that it's Jesus that's getting the credit all the time. That needs to be on our lips, okay? That needs to be, that needs to be, he needs to be the one that's getting the credit. He's the source of all things good. One of the things Jesus asked us to do to remember this is to take communion together. And so we're going to do that this morning. Uh, now, Jesus, whenever he got together before his crucifixion, got together with his friends, and they were taking a Passover meal together, which uh, for the Jews was a holiday. They had some unleavened bread, they had some wine, and at one point in the meal, Jesus paused to give them an object lesson. Now, Jesus knew he was about to go die on a cross. His friends had not gotten the message yet. Even though he straight up told them what was about to happen, I think they thought his words were maybe metaphorical, uh, because they did not get that this was all according to God's plan as things went down. 
But in that meal, he took bread and he broke it and he gave each of them a piece. And he says, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. I want you to take this in remembrance of me. He took some wine and he told them all to take a drink. And he said, this is my blood, this cup that's going to be spilled for you. I want you to take this in remembrance of me. And this object lesson for them at the time would not have made sense. But then after that meal, he's arrested, he's tried, he's flogged, he's crucified. All the disciples scatter. They're out for three days. And then on the third day, he rose again. He comes back from the grave and he starts making these funny appearances to the guys, messing with them. Uh, But then he starts spending time with them for about 40 days. He spends time with them. And during that period of of time, Jesus continued to teach them about the kingdom. He continued to open their minds to things they had missed in the scriptures. All of this had been according to God's plan, him dying on the cross, his raising from the dead. He helped them see him in the Old Testament and how the sacrificial system and the holidays and everything was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Guys, if you want to know what the Bible's about, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus. So he helped them see that. And then he also helped them see the purpose of communion. And so from that period on, every time the church would come together on Sunday, which was different from Saturday, that's when the Jews met to go to synagogue, that's the Sabbath. Sunday was the time the Christians got together because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It was on a Sunday. And so they would come together on a Sunday And they would take communion and they would worship and they'd look at some scriptures. But communion was a big part of their early meetings. And guys, for the first 300 years of the church, you want to know what they didn't have? They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have cathedrals. They didn't have any of that stuff. For the first 300 years of the church, the the church met in homes on Sunday largely to take communion together. And Jesus thought it was so important that they do this because Jesus wants you to know that we serve a God who loves you so much that he was willing to make himself a human being and come into the world and die on a cross just to prove to you how committed he is to you. He's God. He could have come up with a different way. He could have said, if you want to be a Christian, wave your hand and stand on one foot and repeat after me. You know, that's not what he did. He said, if you want to be a Christian, I want you to learn to have my kind of heart. Where you're willing to give your all for others. Where you're willing to give your all for others for the betterment of their life. Where you don't just make it all about you. Where you're not just thinking about your career or or your comfort. Where you're thinking about others. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. And as you become a disciple of Jesus, guys, communion is one of those things that should center you every single week to remind you we serve a God who's selfless. We serve a God who's sacrificial. We serve a God who loves others even when it hurts. Right? So what's communion for? Well, it's to be reminded of that because God wants us to remember as we take this together, we need to be like him. And if there's anything in my life that's keeping me from being like him, if I'm being selfish if I'm being self-centered, if I'm being unkind, if I'm not having compassion for people like I should, if I'm not being like Jesus, communion should be the time where I'm convicted of that. And communion should be the time when I say, if there's garbage in my heart that's not like Jesus, if my heart's not like him, then I need to change it. And that's what it's about, guys. So we're going to take communion this morning. I want you to be reminded, we serve a God. This is how much he's willing to give for people. He he had his body broken. He had his blood spilled. Let's stop making excuses about not being kind. 
Let's stop justifying uh, being a jerk to that person that was a jerk to us. What does Jesus say we should do for our enemies? Love your enemies and pray for them, right? What did he do on the cross whenever his enemies surrounded him and were talking crap about him in front of his mom while he was sitting there dying? If there's ever a time to be a jerk back, it's that time. What did he do? He prayed for their forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If that doesn't convict you, it should. And that's what communion is for, guys. It is to remember what Jesus is like, how he sacrifices this for us, and it is also for us to be convicted in areas of our life where we're not being like him. It is all about him. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together before we continue with our lesson. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the gift of the cross. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. Help us to be convicted where we are falling short. Help us to make our lives all about you and not anything else, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Every saint. Uh, Some of you are thinking of people that you know that are really good examples of disciples of Christ. Guess what? They weren't always that way. They, They have a past. And every sinner, some of you are thinking of people that have really blown it in life, whose life is not good right now, right? They've made some bad decisions. Well, guess what? God can still use them and work through them and use them for amazing things. When Jesus gets involved in somebody's life, he'll turn it upside down in a good way. Uh, The Bible says it like this in Ephesians 2.10. It is God himself who has made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ Jesus. And long ages ago, he planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. Notice that. Long ages ago, he planned that we should spend these lives. That's talking about your life, helping others. People say, what's the purpose of life? It's to figure out the person God created you to be and do the things that God created you to do. That's a, that's a very some answer of what the Bible says. Love God and love others, right? What's the greatest command in all the Bible? Love God and love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's life with Jesus according to God's design, and it's by the mercy of God that we get to live that. Guys, and if you're trying to earn the mercy of God, you need to stop. You're not going to be the person that God created you to be if you're trying to earn his mercy. But if you'll accept his mercy, if you'll believe what the Bible says about you, if you'll believe what Jesus says about you and accept his mercy and live from his mercy, that's how you can have the life that God designed for you to have. Secondly, if I want to be used by God, the second secret is number two, I need to be authentic. I need to be authentic. We just mean be real, be genuine, be yourself. Don't be somebody else that God didn't create you to be. God wants to use you as you. He doesn't want you to pretend to be somebody you're not. He didn't create you to be somebody else. He created you to be you. And when you get to heaven someday, God isn't going to ask you, why aren't you more like your your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister or your friend? He's not going to ask you that. He's not going to compare you to anybody else He made you to be you. And a lot of people think, if I'm going to be used by God, I need to be somebody that I'm not. Now, there's a caveat to that. He does want us to be more like who? Jesus. Jesus was perfect, right? He's the one exception to the rule. He's the only one that we look to and say, I need to be more like him. 
Not another fallible human being. I'm not gifted like him or her. No. Are you like Jesus? That's the question. Were you like Jesus in your life? That tells a lot about you. Were you did you think like him? Did you talk like him? Did you love people like him? Did you get into the word like him? Did you memorize scripture like him? Did you pray like him? That's the question we need to be asking. And that's the question we can start asking right now, guys. But God doesn't want you to fake being somebody that you're not. God doesn't expect that from you. Guys, if you attempt to be inauthentic, it's going to do three things. It's going to introduce stress into your life. Because number one, you're always going to be under stress if you're, if you're trying to be somebody that you're not. <coughs> Number two, you're going to have fear of being exposed, so that's going to introduce stress into your life, because what if they find out I'm not this person, right? And then number three, you're just going to be manipulating people. You're going to be lying to people because you're not being real. You're pretending to be this person that you're not. Now, this happens a lot in religious circles where people come in, and they, especially new believers, they, wanna, they want that positive affirmation, they want that attention, and so they pretend to be a whole lot more holy than they are. And they, they pretend to be somebody that's not. Guys, don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. Don't be inauthentic. If you've blown it, just talk about it. If you find something in your life that doesn't align with Jesus... Change your heart and mind to be more like him, but don't act like you were like him the whole time. It doesn't do any good. And nobody believes you anyway. Right? Don't fake it. Changing our hearts and minds to be more like Jesus is what we call repentance. Now that's a Bible word that you hear in church. It just means that you're changing your heart and mind to be like Jesus. Okay, it's not just going through the motions. Guys, did you know you can go through the motions and make it look like you're this follower of Christ when really you're not. And I'll just tell you guys, God is more interested in your heart than he is your, your actions a lot of times. Um, you can do the right actions and have the wrong part, heart and not be pleasing to God. On the flip side of that, you can do all the wrong stuff, but then God can see your heart. And if your heart was in the right place, well, he sees that too, even though you blew it, right? He's looking at your heart though. That's what matters to God. It's the inside man and the inside woman that matters to God. Who you are on the inside that nobody else can see. That's who God can see, and that's what God is concerned with. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have turned away from secret and shameful ways. We don't use trickery, and we don't change the teaching of God. We teach the truth plainly. This is how we show people who we are, and this is how they can know in their hearts what kind of people we are before God. Okay, now I want to point out there that the Apostle Paul says, we don't use trickery. In other words, we're not being fake. We are not faking it. We're being honest about who we are. We're being honest about our flaws and our shortcomings. Paul teaches us here to be authentic. This is the second secret to really being used by God, is you have to be real. Now let me repeat that. You don't have to be fake to be used by God. In fact, it's counterproductive. You don't have to be fake. I'm a flawed man. If you spend any time with me, you're going to learn that I'm a flawed man. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a flawed man. If we were to spend any time with him, we would learn very quickly he was a flawed man. And there's a truth that you need to embrace. The truth is you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. 
You don't have to have it all together to be used by God. You don't have to be free from mistakes to be used by God. You just have to be authentic. You have to be real. You can't fake it, right? Now, authentic, let me give you a definition. Authentic is conforming to fact and therefore worthy of trust. Conforming to fact and therefore worthy of trust. Being real is the opposite of being a hypocrite. A hypocrite in the original language just means a play actor. It means somebody who's playing a part, a person who is not real. Now Jesus was critical of the Pharisees for being hypocrites, play actors. They were pretending to be very righteous. They were pretending to really love God when the truth is Jesus could tell very quickly that they didn't because they missed the point of the law, the Old Testament, which was to teach them to love their neighbor. That was the whole point of it. The Pharisees didn't love their neighbor. They hated their neighbor. And Jesus is saying, you guys are just hypocrites pretending to love God when you don't love anybody around you. You guys are just faking it. You don't even know what a relationship with God looks like, right? I must be authentic about who I was and who I am. That's the next blank on your notes. I must be authentic about who I was and who I am. God isn't pleased when we're fake. God doesn't use us when we're fake. Unless it's as a bad example. You want to be used as a bad example of what not to be like? That's not a good life for you. That's the, that's the role the Pharisees find themselves in. Guys, we still talk about them today. Do we ever talk about how great it is to be a Pharisee? No, we don't. We don't. Why? They're used as a bad example. Why? Because they were fake. That's why. Were you weak? You know what you need to do? You need to talk about it. Were you an addict? You need to talk about it. Have you messed up and blown it with sexual sin? You need to talk about it, right? Have you struggled to know how to raise kids? You need to talk about it. Have you made terrible decisions in life? You need to talk about it. Have you been selfish? Have you been materialistic? Have you been abusive to your family? You need to talk about it. You need to be honest about it. You need to not hide it. You need to not be fake. Guys, people don't grow from hearing you talk about your strengths. You understand that? You want to get up and, and, and get up on stage on here, and if there's something you're really good at, get up here and talk about how good you are at it. I'm really good at managing finances. I'm really good at getting promotions at work. I'm really good at this. I'm really good at that. People are going to sit in the audience and think, oh, goody, good for them. Good for them. I'm glad for them, right? You're not going to change anybody's life like that. You want to know how you change somebody's life? You get up and talk about where you've blown it. You get up and talk about how weak you are. You get up and talk about all the crap from your past that happened to you that just wrecked your life. And then you talk about how God worked through that stuff. That's how you change a life. You're not going to change anybody's life getting up here and talking about how great you are. You're going to change somebody's life by getting up here and talking about how great God is. And the way people see God's greatness is through the worst crap that's happened to you in your life that God has worked through. That's how you bring glory to God. If you want to get up here and talk about how we have it all together and we're so great and you should be more like us, that's not going to help anybody. Guys, we have got to point at him. We have got to point to him. And God shines brightest in the darkest places, doesn't he? He shines brightest in the worst crap that's happened in our lives. 
whenever he works through that, people grow from hearing you talk about your weaknesses, how you've struggled, where you've fallen, the trouble you've gotten yourself into, and how God worked to deliver you through it. Your weaknesses are what make people grow the most. Paul knew this. Paul knew this, and he frequently made references to his weaknesses. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the most insignificant of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I hunted down believers and persecuted God's church. Look at that. Paul says, you think you've screwed up? I hunted down the church. You think you've done bad stuff? I hunted down the very people that God reached, and, and I hunted down God's people. You think you've blown it? Paul says, I was a bad dude. And you know what? He, he talked about this a lot. He talked about this story a lot and how God had taken him from that place to the place he was at. But he always was pointing to God and saying, it's because of God's mercy. It's because of God's grace. It's because of Jesus and his love for me and his goodness. I didn't deserve any of this stuff, but God worked through me and gave it to me. You say, it's scary to talk about how I've messed up or fallen short. I could never just be honest about that stuff. Yeah, you could. If it's scary, you just need to lean into God's spirit. Look at what it says in Romans 8, 15. The spirit we receive does not make us slaves against the fear. It makes us children of God. All right, so the spirit is capitalized there. This is talking about the Holy Spirit of God. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Christ, God's spirit comes and lives within your heart. We call this in theological terms the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when you're baptized into Christ, you're filled with the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit is with you as you go through life. And the Spirit does all kinds of good things. But one of the things the Spirit does is the Spirit makes us brave. And this verse teaches we have two choices in life. We can live under a spirit of fear, or we can live under the Spirit of the mercy of God. And if you're a child of God, you have a spirit in you, the spirit of God, that does not make you timid, that does not make you fearful. And if you're struggling with timidity or fear as it relates to being honest about how God has worked in your life, you need to lean into the spirit of God. Because he will give you everything you need to do what he's asking you to do. Because God will not call you to do anything that you cannot do without his help. He'll be there with you, and if he calls you to it, he will qualify you for it. Amen? It's God's mercy that saves you. It's God's mercy that redeems you. It's his merciful outpouring of the Spirit into you that will allow you to bravely speak up, but you got to be real. you got to be authentic. Lean into God's Spirit of mercy to help you be real and authentic. Number three, if I want to be used by God, I must, number three, remember that it's not about me. I must remember that it's not about me. And every time you forget this truth, it's not about me. Every time you forget that, you're going to experience one of two outcomes. Number one, you're going to become bitter because of problems. Or number two, you're going to become prideful because of success. Those are the two ditches that you're going to live in if you're struggling with this, this issue, okay? If you're struggling with selfishness and self-centeredness, the, the result is going to be pride or insecurity, okay? Pride or despair, arrogance or despair. 
Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4-5, Paul reminds us of this third key of being used by God. Go ahead and read uh, verse 5 there. Our message is not about ourselves. It is about Jesus Christ as the Lord. We are merely your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, notice here, he's writing to the church. He says, our message that we have to share is not about the church. It's about Jesus. That's the message that we have to share. We are pointing to him. It's about Jesus Christ as Lord. We're not just going to get up and talk about us and how great we are. Life is not about you. It is not about you. Now, this is often something that's going to test you in life. Does anybody in here ever struggle with thinking life is about them? Does anybody in here ever struggle with needing to be reminded that life is not really about me? i got to remind myself about this all the time. Ask Ariel. I forget. Do I forget, baby? Oh, see there. Uh, I forget, man. Life is not about me. But man, it's just natural to think that way, isn't it? It's natural to get up in the morning and just think, what do I want to do? Right? Is that what a disciple does? Is that what I should be doing? Uh, i got to remind myself 30 to 40 times a day, it's not about me. And learning to follow Christ and letting him use your life in amazing ways is really all about motive. Where is your motive? Is your motive self-centered or is your motive God-centered? Am I thinking about me? And the affirmation and the pats on the back and people thinking how good I am? Or am I really just out to please the Lord? Those are two different hearts, right? And again, this is internal. We talk a lot. God wants your heart. He wants what's inside. The external is is almost secondary a lot of times. It's really about the heart. And God is often less concerned about methodology, that's the way we do things, than he is about motive. That's the internal Motivation, right? You can do the right things in life. That's methodology. But God cares more about why you do things. That's motive. Okay? On the flip side, you can mess up in life. Like I said a second ago, you can make huge mistakes. But if your heart was in the right place, God can see that. He sees that. And that matters. He's more concerned with the heart than anything else. And he sees everything. And I just have to remember that uh, it's not, this attitude that it's not about me, it affects everything about me. For instance, if I go serve the homeless, am I going to serve the homeless because I really genuinely want to love the homeless and give to the poor? Or am I going to serve the homeless because I want to make sure somebody has a cell phone and takes a video of me so I can put it on Instagram? Those are two different motives, right? God can see that. Now, even the person going and posting on Instagram what they've done, well, they did a good thing. But God sees the motive behind that. And guys, people may be keeping score one way. God keeps score a different way. Right? And he sees the heart. Your heart matters. Guys, this kind of thing happens in churches all the time. People become Christians. Uh, A new believer becomes a Christian. And then at first, their motives are really pure. They want to serve God. They want to give. They want to love people. And over time, as we get kind of used to the routine, guys, if we're not careful, as you're getting that positive affirmation, as you're getting those pats on the back, the way Satan can get in there often is he'll get in there and he'll start kind of tweaking things a little bit where pretty soon you're making it about the pats on the back more than about serving Jesus. But the people around you, do they see any of that? 
I mean, can they look and say your motives are impure? No, we don't see that. We, I can't see your heart, but God can. God can, and he knows, right? And so we have to keep our hearts pure. Down in verse 7, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We are like clay jars in which this treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. All right, so he says right here, we're just like jars of clay in which this treasure from God is stored. It says that God puts his power, his love, and his mercy into your heart. He put the treasure inside you. The power comes from him, not us. Well, let me ask you, what happens if you drop a clay jar? It breaks, right? It gets all cracked. Are any of you in here cracked? Or any of you flawed? Or any of you broken? Okay. Uh, well, what if God put a light in that broken jar? What comes out of those cracks? What comes out of those flaws? If God's light's in that jar, what's coming out? It's kind of the light's coming out of the cracks, right? What if you cover up the cracks? I don't want anybody to see my cracks. Some of you shouldn't let people see your crack, by the way. I said cracks with an S. What if you cover that up, right? You're, you're blocking the glory of God shining out of your life because you're trying to pretend like you have it all together. Guys, God will shine out through your flaws. God will shine out through your brokenness. But you have to remember it's not about me in order to have the security to share your brokenness and your shame. Some of you guys in here right now have things in your life that you have done that you are ashamed of that you have said internally, I will never, ever tell. And you're going to carry that shame with you. And guys, I'm speaking to you as one who was severely abused when I was a kid. If you come to the crossings, you hear me talk about it. Why? Because God works through brokenness. I was molested starting at about the age of three through about the age of eight, off and on. And you want to talk about messed up. By the time I got to high school, I got on drugs. I wrecked my life with addiction. I had a career in the radio industry that I derailed when I got older. I worked in some major commercial markets and had a lot of attention of all my mess ups. One of the reasons I have a thick skin today is because I know what criticism feels like on a large scale. Um, so I don't get bothered very much when I get a letter or a little bit of criticism from the community, right? Uh, but I learned through all of that that there is no life that I want separate from Jesus Christ. There is no life that I want separate from him. After I became a Christian, it was very, very hard for me just to be honest about the things I'd done. Guys, there were things in my past that I said I will never tell. There were things that I was ashamed of. And some of the stuff now that I get up on stage and talk about to you guys and that I see God work through, those are some of the things that at one time in my life I said I will never tell. But now I'm able to see how God works through that kind of garbage. God can take the very deepest darkness and use it for light. And guys, I'm not saying that to brag on me, okay? I'm saying that to give you uh, hope that you can do that too. And guys, the Apostle Paul, you think he wasn't ashamed of the stuff he had done? 
The stuff that he writes down in these letters, those are the very kinds of things that he probably said at one time. I'll never tell. But he let God and his mercy fill him up to the point where it wasn't about him, where he wasn't working for God's love. He was working from God's love. And as a result, he had the security in that relationship with God that he could be honest about himself and authentic. And that's, that's how God shines through these flaws, is where we just make that decision. When I was younger, guys, I had a really hard time admitting my weaknesses. I had a really hard time admitting that there was anything wrong with me because I was so insecure. I was so deeply insecure. Anytime you find somebody that is unwilling to talk about their weaknesses, it's insecurity that's driving that. That's all that is. And that's a very, very common thing. Okay, that's very common. So if you're feeling insecure right now, it's okay. It's normal, okay? But you need to recognize it. And, and the more insecure you are, guys, the more distant you are from accepting God's mercy. Now, you need to make that connection because that's going to be very important for your life. If you're feeling super insecure this morning, you need to understand you are distant from God's mercy because accepting God's mercy is the antidote to insecurity. It's the antidote to it. Insecurity is also just another way of making life all about you. Because who are you thinking about? You're thinking about you. Guys, again, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. This is common. This is normal. You just need to recognize it. you got to recognize stuff before you can work on it, right? You, you hold up a mirror and look in the mirror because that booger's hanging out of your nose, right, before you go to the job interview. Why do you look in the mirror? So I can wipe the booger off my nose, right? Okay, we got to look in the mirror to know what changes we need to make. Look in the mirror this morning. Do I have stuff in my life that I say I would never tell? You're living out of insecurity. What God will do when you embrace his mercy, he will give you the bravery to share that stuff and to let him work through it because there may be things in here that you feel like you aren't forgiven for. There may be things in here that, that you haven't really repented of. There may be things that you need help with, and that's okay. Because a lot of times the things that we are most deeply ashamed of, I guarantee you there's people right around you that have struggled with the same thing. I guarantee you. And I know people's stories in here. If you knew the story of your neighbor, you'd move down a couple of seats, some of you. Okay? But God works through that stuff. He works in spite of that stuff. When you put down insecurity and accept His mercy, God's mercy can shine through your flaws. And number four, if I want to be used by God, number four, I must recycle my pain to help others. I must recycle my pain to help others. And this kind of goes along with what I was just saying about the treasure in clay jars. Uh, does anybody in here recycle? Anybody in here recycle? Okay, you got a recycling bin at your house. Uh, if you want to recycle something, you throw it in the recycling bin, right? And then the, the truck comes, the recycling truck, they, they take that uh, stuff and they take it to the recycling plant. And what do they do at the recycling plant? They take that stuff and then they recraft it into something that can be useful. 
What if you have a, a product that could be recycled, but you just throw it in the regular trash can? What do they do with it? Well, they just take it to the landfill, right? What good does it do in the landfill? Well, it feeds the underground fire in St. Louis near the toxic waste. Google it. Uh, not good. It's not good for anything, right? If it's just taken and thrown in the landfill. Guys, your pain can be the same way. That stuff that you're ashamed of, that stuff that you said, I'll never tell, that stuff that you're afraid of anybody ever finding out, uh, that hurt that you have, that you carry through life, that darkness you have inside you because of that thing that was done to you or that thing that you did, all of that can be taken and God can take it and recycle it and actually use it for good. God in his mercy can recycle your pain. He can recycle your brokenness. He can recycle your flaws. Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians 4.15. Go ahead. All of these sufferings of ours are for your benefit. And the more of you who are one to Christ, the more they are to thank you for his great mercy. And the more God gets glory. All right. Paul understood his pain and suffering would be recycled in service to God. Now, Paul went through a lot of pain. If you study the story of Paul, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was flogged, he was imprisoned. He had all kinds of bad stuff happen to him. And he talks about it openly. And he uses it as, as an example in his teaching a lot. But he also says that through these sufferings, I'm able to glorify God. He actually thanked God for his suffering. In a couple of places. He's thank God that he got to suffer like Jesus. Because God counted him worthy to suffer like Jesus. That's a crazy way to look at things. But that's the way a guy who embraced the mercy of God got to look at things. It changed his perspective. God can take the things that you're ashamed of and recycle them. The things that have hurt you the most. The things that you are most ashamed of, God can take and use to bless others. Now Paul is a man who didn't just talk about serving Jesus, he had skin in the game. And so whenever we hear him say, God can take your pain and use it to bless others, you guys need to understand, he suffered a lot more than any of us in here for his faith. Way more, okay? And he still said this. Somebody might ask Paul, why did you go through all that? What, what made you keep on? Why did you let all this stuff happen? Why didn't you just give up? And Paul's response might have been something like, because of the mercy of God. Because of the love of God that he poured out on me. You want to know why he could say something like that, though? When you embrace the mercy of God, you have a future to look forward to. And one of the things that will cause you to get discouraged and to feel depressed, depression often is just, I don't feel like I have anything to look forward to. I don't, I don't have anything to get up for. I don't have any reason to get out of bed because I don't have anything to look forward to. When you embrace the mercy of God, you realize that's just a lie. You have a lot to look forward to. Paul had been tempted to give up, but he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Go ahead. Therefore, we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits being renewed every day. For our present troubles are quite small and won't last yet won't last very long. Yet they produce for us an immeasurably great glory that will last forever. Look at that, man. This guy says our present troubles are what? They're quite small, right? 
He had some troubles, guys. You realize he was disabled by this point in his life because of the beatings that he had taken. He couldn't even hold a pen as an old man because his hands were so jacked up. If you saw his back, you would have been like, man, that guy's been through some mess in life because his back had chunks taken out of it from the floggings. He was flogged several times. He was beaten with rods several times. He was thrown in a hole and stoned with rocks. To the, and that may be why he couldn't hold a pen, because he was covering his head like this. He got his hands all mangled, right? He probably walked with a limp. He probably couldn't talk very clearly by the end of life because his jaw had been jacked so many times by different people. This was a guy who had skin in the game, but he says of his troubles they are quite small. Why? Because he was looking forward to a future with Jesus in eternity. And he didn't just talk about it, guys. He really believed that as a reality. You know that's what hope is in the Bible. Elpis, the word hope means confident expectation. It doesn't mean maybe this will happen in the future. It means I know this is going to happen in the future, and so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking ahead to it. That's what hope is. Paul was a man who was filled with hope. Why? Because he embraced the mercy of God. That's why. He embraced the mercy of God. He was the guy that said to live as Christ, but to die as gain. To live as Christ. I'm going to keep teaching people about Jesus as long as I'm alive. To die as gain. Well, if you kill me, I'm just going to go be with Christ, so I win. The Romans didn't know what to do with the guy. What do you do with that guy? Like, we'll let him live. Well, I'm going to keep doing what I do. Well, then we'll kill you. Okay. What do you do with that guy? He's frustrating, right? Why was he like that? Because of the mercy of God. He embraced the mercy of God. And he talked about his pain. Why? Because God will recycle your pain. Paul used his pain as an illustration of the mercy of God. And guys, you can do the same thing with your pain. You can take your pain and give it to God. When you give it to God, he's the great recycler. He will take the deepest, blackest darkness and he'll turn it into the brightest shining light to help others. So don't forget that. Number five, lastly, if I want to be used by God, number five, I must remain focused on eternity. I must remain focused on eternity. You have got to maintain an eternal perspective on things. This is how you keep from being overwhelmed by life's problems is by remembering that there's an eternity that we have to look forward to. And life is full of problems, isn't it? Is your life full of problems? Mine is, and that's not going to stop. But this broken world is not going to have the final word. We don't have to deal with brokenness for eternity. We get, to, we get to enjoy perfection in eternity. We get to enjoy light and life and joy in eternity. But between now and then, we're going to have some problems. I can deal with that, right, for a while. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. These little troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. Notice there, he says little troubles. These little troubles. I just got beaten. I just got imprisoned. I'm now disabled because I was beaten so bad. I have people trying to kill me. I had to escape two different towns to run away from death squads. Little troubles. Little troubles? If any one of those things happened to me, do you think I would be calling it a little trouble? What about you? 
He had that, he had that stuff happen to him all the time. Little troubles. Wow. Okay. Maybe he's right and I'm wrong. Right? I can stub my toe. I can get a little hungry. It's not a little trouble, you know. That's how immature I am sometimes. And so I look at this guy and I'm like, you know what? He's being like Jesus. And I'm not. What about you? What about you? Are these little troubles in life or are these big troubles in life? Does your perspective need to change on some things? I know mine does. But guys, this is why we get in the Word. This is why we look at this stuff. We hold up the mirror so we can see what needs to change, right? That's we hold up the mirror of the Word of God so we can see what needs to change. Does your attitude need to change? Mine does. I'm not a stellar example of this. He goes on in verse 18 to say this. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not yet seen. For the troubles we will see soon be over, but joys to come will last forever. Again, guys, little trouble, shipwrecks, prison sentences, beatings, floggings, stonings. He's like, in 100 years, is anybody going to remember this? I've got this eternity to look forward to. These, because the eternity is so big, these over here are so small. That's why he can call them little troubles. Guys, that is key. That's the eternal perspective of the Apostle Paul. That is the eternal perspective of the disciples of Jesus that we read about in the Bible. That is the eternal perspective that you and I need to adopt where we can look at anything in this life and say, eh, that's, that's small. That's chump change. Why is it small? Because we see eternity coming. And when we realize the vast immensity of eternity, it does make things look small. Maybe we don't think about that enough. There's three motivations in life for things. You can either have internal motivation for life, which is, uh, I want to be happy, I want to be popular, uh, I want that promotion, uh, I, I, I want to make this grade point average. It's, it's all internal sort of goals that you set, right? So you have internal motivation, and that can be what, what's driving you. Or you can have external motivation. This is, uh, I'm afraid of what people think about me. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm not going to be liked. Uh, I'm afraid people aren't going to think I'm doing a good job. You know, a lot of this is driven by insecurity. And so we, we would say that's external motivation. Okay, like carrot and stick, right? Uh, but the highest form of motivation that you can have in life, that anybody can have in life, is the third one, and that's eternal motivation. Eternal Motivation, And that is the type of motivation that the Apostle Paul and all the disciples of Jesus share. Where you're not motivated by selfish ambition or insecurity. You are motivated by a willingness to please an eternal God who has gracefully and mercifully poured out his love into your life. Where you are motivated not by the carrot and stick of insecurity... Uh, you're motivated because you're living from the mercy of God and the love of God that you have accepted into your life. Does that make sense? And you get to go be with him in an eternity. 
So you can handle anything this life throws at you. God never promises us life free from pain. He does promise to equip us to be able to deal with any pain. He doesn't promise you a life free from problem. He does promise that he will help equip you to deal with any problem. Okay? But you have to accept his mercy. You have to accept his love. And you have to keep your eye on the future that we get to have with him in heaven. This life, guys, is just a test. That's all this life is. It's just a test. He wants you to learn to be the person that he created you to be. All of these things we're looking at in the Bible, they weren't meant to just make your life miserable. Guys, the best life you can have is wrapped up in living life according to the way Jesus says to live it. It's living out of the mercy of God. Paul is a guy who was fueled by eternal motivation. That is the highest form of motivation. That's why he could look at the things that happened to him in life and refer to them as little problems, right? Because he was looking at eternity. He was looking through the lens of eternity. The key to remaining focused, this is the last blank on your notes, the key to all of this for us is a small group. It's a small group. Um, You want to become the person that God created you to be? You're going to do that by becoming being with people who are trying to do the same thing. The Bible says over and over that you're going to become like the people you spend the most time with. Over and over. Bad company corrupts good character. Walk with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. You go down the list, there's a whole bunch of truths and principles in Scripture that indicate the people you spend the most time with are who you're going to become like. In sociological circles, we call that socialization. It's actually scientifically proven, right? But it's a principle that comes right out of the scriptures. It's ancient. I want to invite you, if you want to get on this journey to becoming the person that God created you to be, I want to invite you to check out one of our mercy groups that's getting together this week. Uh, We've got groups that are meeting throughout the community, and what we're doing is this week we're getting together and watching a little video And we've got some books that we're going through that have discussion questions that go along with the video, and we're just talking about it. And these lessons that we're going over together are really just designed for us to take the Bible and apply it to our lives. And you get to do that with a group of friends who are all trying to do the same thing. How many of you guys in here have been blessed from small groups at the crossings? Raise your hand high, okay. Uh, If you haven't plugged into a small group at the crossings, I want to invite you to, because honestly, it's the best thing we have going here. It's good for us to get together on Sundays, and it's good for us to look in the Word, and it's good for us to to worship together. But honestly, Christianity in the Bible looked a little bit differently than the way we do it here. It really looked more like a small group than it did here. For the first 300 years of the church, they they basically were small groups. Um, We believe that a lot of the principles that we read about in the New Testament are best acted upon in that context. And so uh, there's actually something missing from your life if you don't have a group of friends like this who are all trying to follow Jesus. It says in Ecclesiastes 4.12, go ahead. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. And three people are even better for a triple braided cord and not easily broken. And go ahead and read uh, Matthew 18.20 as well. 
For, for wherever two or three come together in my name, I will be there with them. Okay, now there's principles in these verses, guys. The first, you were not designed to do life alone, okay? You need people in your life. You need a little group of friends in your life to serve as a support system. If you have two, three, four friends that love Jesus in your life that are intentional about getting together, you have a great support system. And you need that. Why? Because you're broken. And I am too, and so are they. And we were designed to do this thing together because we're not supposed to do it on our own. It says in that Matthew passage, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. That's Jesus talking. You want Jesus in your life? Do you want Jesus in your life? You need to get into a small group because Jesus works through these groups. I'm telling you, if you haven't engaged in that, you need to. Um, there's some cards in your bulletin that have different groups on them. Uh, go ahead and, and take a look at that. Uh, we would love to get you plugged in. I'll just tell you, one of the groups is meeting at my house. We're the one on Wednesday. Uh, there's another group for adults uh, meeting at June and John's house. Uh, June, give a wave. Okay, there's John over there, June there. Um, if you want to go on, on Tuesday, you can go there. That's in Alton. We've got a group meeting in Troy uh, on Thursdays, Max and Tyler. Max, give away. There's Max back there if you want to go there. We've got groups for teens. We've got groups for college students. If, if you would like to plug into a mercy group this week, just know you are invited. Okay? You are invited, and I want to invite you to check that out and watch God work. Uh, guys, we have a lot of other stuff that we offer here at the Crossings designed to help you. Uh, this is a safe church, a safe place where you can come and you can actually get help and nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to look down on you. I don't care where you are in, in your walk with God. I don't care if you don't believe in God or if you're just investigating. Guys, there, we don't believe in stupid questions. If you have a question, we're not going to think you're stupid for asking it. If you're struggling even with believing the Bible can be trusted, you're not, we're not going to bat an eye at that, guys, because that's where a lot of us came from. So you just need to know you're in a safe place. I do want to invite you to pull out that cardstock piece of paper in your bulletin. Uh, we're going to close out this morning with this. And I want to invite you to a greater connection here, whether that's coming to a small group this week, which you are invited to, or if it's just going out to lunch with somebody today and getting to know somebody and being somebody's friend, I want to invite you to do that. God works through relationships. Jesus works through relationships. One of the greatest blessings that he will give you in your life is really good friends who are trying to love him too. And it's all about him, guys. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song, and that's going to give you an opportunity to fill that card out that I just referenced. Uh, after that first song, we'll sing one more song to close, and we're going to pass some baskets. Uh, and you can just drop your card in that basket when it comes by, and one of us will uh, follow up with you. Whether you need prayer or any of the stuff that's listed on that card, just let us know, and we will help you out. Uh, one more thing that I want to mention before we close. You've got a card for the men in the room. There's a card for the men's camp out in, their, in your package. I want to invite you guys to go to crossingscollinsville.com slash men and sign up for our men's camp out that's going to take place on the May the 20th and 21st. I do need you to sign up, okay? We have to figure out sleeping arrangements. We need to figure out food. Uh, if you're going to go rappelling, we need to get you registered for that. Um, if you have questions about that, 
ask. Uh, but please pull out your phone this morning and go ahead and sign up, crossingscollinsville.com slash men, because we do need to get a count so we can get the right food and stuff, okay? Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing, and that's going to give you an opportunity to fill out that card. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Uh, I pray as we leave here today that we will be intentional about connecting with you and with others. Uh, God, if we've been afraid to take that step to greater connection with you, or uh, God, if we just need help with something, I pray you'll help us be brave this morning. Ask for help for the things we need help with. If we have questions, help us to be brave and ask those questions. If we need to study the Bible to learn more about you, help us to be brave and ask for that. Uh, but Lord, just work in our lives. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.